This book and my talk today are about Cinnabar, Montana, a town that no longer exists, and the way in which the town served as the railroad gateway for a generation of visitors to Yellowstone National Park from late 1883 through mid-June of 1903, and then the short version of how that land was added to Yellowstone. It is also about a Montana pioneer named Hugo J. Hoppy, the town's greatest believer and promoter who was patriarch of one family trying to make it in the American West. Cinnabar was not the first gateway to Yellowstone. That was Livingston, Montana a year earlier. When the Northern Pacific Railroad's surveyors and land speculators arrived there in late 1882, the event not only established Livingston as a town, but it also pointed the way south with the future rails to Yellowstone Park. Rails that everyone knew would soon be built to the new park or preserve or whatever it was to be called. Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming were not yet states. All three were raw territories and would remain so until 1889 and 1890. This is the earliest known photo of Livingston taken from north of town and the numbering in F.J. Haynes's 1883 catalog makes it likely that it was indeed taken that year. Here's an historical map of the area. Uh, all of the small, these small towns were struggling to exist and a lot of them did not make it. Cinnabar is here, Gardner is here, and we also see the two coal towns of Aldridge and Electric, earlier known as Hoar, H-O-R-R, and that is how I will be referring to it. Um, they no longer exist today, but they play an important part in this story. Now we return to the very beginnings of Montana and the main character in my talk, namely Hugo John Hoppe. Born in Germany, Hoppe immigrated to the U.S. in 1848 and traveled west over the Oregon Trail with 94 other travelers in wagons. Hoppe went first to California where he prospected for gold and then to Nevada. When the Civil War broke out, he joined the 2nd California Cavalry. He mustered out in 1863 and went to Utah Territory where he married Mary G. James. G-E-E, -E, her middle name, her, which was her maiden name. Leaving Mary there temporarily, he went to Virginia City in 1863 just as the Alder Gulch gold strike was getting started. He spelled his name H-O-P-P-Y then, and he arrived in Virginia City in November, just in time to meet none other than Sheriff Henry Plummer. Caught up in the excitement of Montana's vigilantes, Hugo Hoppy helped hang Mr. Plummer and other members of his gang on January 10, 1864. Pregnant and escorting her seven-year-old daughter, Maggie James, the new Mrs. Hoppy arrived in Virginia City in May, and she and Hugo Hoppy remained married for the next 30 years. Hugo adopted Maggie, spiritually if not legally, and the family began living in Montana where they would work for 20 years before Mary helped Hugo plow his hopes into the town of Cinnabar. Their son, Walter Hoppy, was born on August 4, 1864. Ever after, he was called the first white child born in Montana, and so far, no other baby has ever arisen to take that title away from him. Twenty years later, he would haul early loads of lumber to Mammoth Hot Springs for the construction of the big hotel there in Yellowstone Park. But back to 1864. Only about 28,000 people lived in Montana then. That was not many people to inhabit such a vast landscape, which still contained roaming Indian tribes. For the next 18 years, the Hoppies lived all over Montana, experiencing the turbulent lives of territorial pioneers, which people in those days called border life. 
The Hoppies stayed in Virginia City until 1866 when they moved to Helena, then Fort Benton, Glendale, Anaconda, Butte, Bozeman, and Miles City, where Hugo Hoppy served as Sheriff of Custer County for a couple of years. Like everyone else on the Montana frontier, he and Mary dabbled in numerous ways of making a living, prospecting, fur trapping, hoteling, bartending, beer making, farming, ranching, operating a trading post and ferry, and finally, the occupation that he most came to depend upon, working as a freighter. Also called bullwhackers or mule skinners, these freighters moved people's stuff around the country with many horses and mules, and also hauled products to market. In those days, it seemed like everyone was itinerant, traveling from small towns to mining camps to out-of-state railheads and steamships, for there were no railroads yet in Montana Territory. Hugo and Mary did freight their way over to Fort Benton, that Montana port to which the first steamboats had finally arrived in 1860. Everyone shipped stuff downriver from there. So Fort Benton was an important place, and thus it has been called the birthplace of Montana. The Hoppy's second son, Huey, was born there in 1865, and his happy parents named him Hugh Benton Hoppy for that important place. Eventually moving to Bozeman, the small agricultural town that had been founded in 1864, Hugo Hoppy found himself still wanting to prospect for gold not unusual in a place that eventually became known as the Treasure State. That required that he go to Montana's remotest places, which still contained hostile Indians. So in 1874, the year of this photo, he joined a prospecting expedition that also intended to look for a wagon route to the east. Billings did not exist yet. They were looking for a way to hook up the eastern part along the river with Bozeman and the towns to the west. Its members got into some Indian skirmishes and failed to find gold, but did produce this photograph of what I think is Hugo Hoppy there at lower right. If it's not Hoppy, it sure looks like him. Unfortunately, author Don Webert, now deceased, did not tell us where he found this photograph, and a check with various repositories has so far failed to turn up the original photo. Any of you who runs into it or knows about it, please call me. <laughs> Hugo Hoppy had red hair in those days and his grandniece described him as having auburn hair with gray-blue eyes that were probably quite striking. He and Mary and their sons continued to live in Bozeman, where they were present for the territory's first U.S. Census in 1870, and where his fourth son, Lee Hoppy, was born that year. Hugo Hoppy ran back and forth to run a trading post at Benson's Landing, that early forerunner of Livingston and Hoppy also continued his freighting business south to Cook City and eventually Gardner when that town was founded in 1880. It was also about this time that Hoppy changed the spelling of his name from H-O-P-P-Y to H-O-P-P-E. His descendants don't know why he did that and neither do I. Maybe he liked the fact that it looked more German for we know that he valued his old world heritage. In 1881, Hugo Hoppy heard, like everyone else in Montana, that the Northern Pacific Railroad was building west from North Dakota into the territory, and he also knew that the decade-old Yellowstone Park would soon become a tourist destination. He liked his freighting occupation, but he also could not resist the excitement of the approaching railroad, the promise of gold at Cook City and Bear Gulch, and his dreams of somehow making money from all those tourists who were sure to ride the new trains to Yellowstone Park. Think of how that must have been. Wow. He, 
He wanted to turn his freighting over his sons and do something less physical, so the idea that began forming in his head was to own a hotel, a store, a saloon, and a share of the tourist business that would soon come to Yellowstone. They're going to build a railroad was an idea that ran around and around in Hugo Hoppy's head. So he started trying his best to move to that upper Yellowstone River country where he had already been freighting for a couple of years. Land records show that Hoppy declared a coal claim near Cinnabar Mountain in May of 1882, but his family and freight company were still in Bozeman. This photo shows Cinnabar Mountain and its Devil's Slide before the railroad arrived. The mountain was named in the 1860s probably by prospectors Charles and James Sowell, or more likely Sowell, S-O-W-L, who thought they had made a strike of cinnabar there, red mercuric sulfide, when in fact there was no such mineral there, it was just plain old iron oxide. Meanwhile, the railroad's graders and surveyors reached Livingston late that summer, and in November of 1882, the tracks and the trains arrived. That event essentially started the town of Livingston. The Northern Pacific almost immediately began building its tracks south toward Yellowstone Park. According to a descendant, Hugo Hoppy made a deal with a rancher named James Henderson to swap land he owned at Bozeman for Henderson's ranch south of Cinnabar Mountain along with some cash. It was the piece of ground that looks like this today, around 1,000 acres that remained in the Hoppy family until 1925. Because his land backed up to what would become the town of Cinnabar, and anticipating that he would need a barn or something in which to store freight on and off the railroad, he also built a large warehouse. Not long after the railroad arrived, photographer T.W. Ingersoll took this photo. Notice how the tracks are so new that the ties are not even well buried yet, and construction materials are still lying around. And of course, the minute the railroad got close to the area, it needed a terminus. But a mining claim blocked the way to Gardner, so the railroad purchased land from Keeney and Houston in sections 16 and 17. There, the new town of Cinnabar, named from Cinnabar Mountain, began very slowly to rise. Here is a close-up map from today of Hoppy's Ranch in the town site of Cinnabar. Hoppy's buildings were here and in section 20, and Cinnabar was here in sections 16 and 17 where the road is straight, just as it is still is today. All of this is in Yellowstone Park today, but that was not the case in Hugo Hoppy's day. This land was not added to the park until 1932, and that is its own complex story, which I've told in the last few chapters of the book. The colors on this map represent land ownership, also a complex story. Those stories are beyond the scope of my talk today, but I'll be happy to answer any questions about them if you have them at the end of the, of the talk. Now, I will read you the train story directly from the book. Officially, train service to Cinnabar began on September 1st, 1883. On that day, engineer Irwin and conductor Bent brought up a train from Livingston pulled by engine number 163. It included the special car Montana, along with the cars intended for the use of President Chester A. Arthur, who was then touring the park. The President's party had entered the park from the south on horseback, and was leaving via the newly completed park branch to Livingston. If they could not be the new line's first literal passengers, the railroad no doubt wished it to be ceremonially so. But things worked out for the railroad, because those VIPs were indeed the first official passengers out of the park heading north, as the Livingston Enterprise reported. Reading Hugo Hoppy's account, 
One gets the impression that half the world was there at Cinnabar on the day the first official train arrived. He said, freighters were there to get freight. Guides were there for hunting trips. Men were there who ran pack outfits through the park. And stagecoaches were there for the tourists who were to tour the park by way of the hotel system. Gamblers in broadcloth with black broad-brimmed hats, wearing diamonds that would make a bullseye blink. Trappers in fringed buckskin jackets. Cowboys in Stetsons, Shaps, and Spurs riding ponies that bucked. Prospectors, unshaven and unkempt. Miners from Cook City with buckskin bags full of gold dust. Ranchmen and farmers and Democrats were all there the day the first train pulled into Cinnabar. After more than two decades of looking for a strike, said Hoppy, he was sure that he had struck it rich. The above quote may have been the way he remembered it, but I think it's a lot of baloney. I think he misremembered. The local newspaper did not mention in any such gala festivities at Cinnabar. The Enterprise stated only that the presidential party with their escort arrived here today at 9 a.m. and left by special train. Additionally, neither of the two Bozeman newspapers, the Bozeman uh, Avant Courier and the Bozeman uh, Chronicle, mentioned any such celebration at Cinnabar as Hoppy claimed. While it makes sense that at least some people would have been waiting there to see President Arthur, there was nothing present in the way of facilities at Cinnabar to host such onlookers. So if the event occurred, the only buildings present were Hoppy's single warehouse, some scattered cabins, and the railroad's wooden platform, probably joined for that celebratory moment, if it happened, and I don't think it did, by a few tents for the onlookers. As you might already have surmised, we are looking here at the earliest known photo of Cinnabar. Notice that it was then labeled Cinnabar City, just like so many other towns in the American West that were called such and such city. That represented the hopes and dreams of those folks like Hugo Hoppy, who very much wanted that town to succeed. Mr. Hoppy was already living there when F.J. Haynes took this photo in September of 1884 and we can see his new warehouse just above the closest train car. Hoppy might even be in this picture as one of the horse riders or standers or the driver of that wagon with the white horse. I've blown it up and tried to scrutinize it at high resolution, but I can't see the faces well enough to be certain. Cinnabar in this photo was comprised of only Hoppy's new warehouse, two tents, one of which was probably a kitchen for cooking, probably erected by the railroad, the wooden platform, a couple of boxcars serving as a depot, and a third car on a siding that was probably used as a lady's sleeping car. The newspapers tell us that the railroad was searching for ways to put up visitors. Accommodations were sparse. Meanwhile, the people of nearby Gardner were angry. They were seething that the railroad's inability to secure the right-of-way to their town threatened to obstruct their prosperity. These citizens believed that only one of the two towns would ultimately survive, and they desperately wanted it to be Gardner. They must have gotten even madder when the Enterprise newspaper ran a story that sided with Cinnabar and was headlined the next Yellowstone City. What happened is a very complex story, if you want to read it. The details are on page 268, involving a miner named Buckskin Jim Cutler, whose mining claim blocked the railroads right away. Nearly everyone thought that the dispute would soon be resolved and the rails would be extended to Gardner, but that did not happen for almost 20 years. Of course, speculator Hugo Hoppe loved that blockage. 
He saw all kinds of possibilities for his and his family's future at Cinnabar. The general strength of railroad travel to Yellowstone Park. Visitors on stagecoaches spending money at his establishments. Extensive coal mining operations looming at what would become the nearby towns of Hoar, H-O-R-R, -R, and Aldrich. And the promise of gold and silver mining in the adjacent districts of Cook City and Bear Gulch. All of those things seem to Hugo Hoppy to bode well for Cinnabars someday becoming the largest town in Montana. This is the Hoppy Ranch on October the 8th, 1885, looking northeast toward the town of Gardner. As you can see, it was a bustle of activity at that moment with horses, people, and buildings, including a tower from the top of which Hoppy could see better in all directions, and two dwellings near his home where he housed a couple of ranch cowboys. When we blow this picture up, we can see that there are at least were at least 17 people in the photograph. And some of them are also in this well-known family photo taken on the very same day, which the Hoppies still call the porch photo. The descendants remain in the area, sixth generation recently born. It captures a moment in time for Hugo Hoppy and his family at the house we saw in the preceding photo. Notice the two bird cages, which probably housed canaries. You've heard of the canary in the coal mine. Well, just like miners did in coal mines, and because ranch houses were heated with wood stoves, a lot of people in those days used canaries to broadcast a danger signal if carbon monoxide escaped into the house from the wood-burning stove. If the birds quit singing, usually because they died, <laughs> it was a signal to leave the house or the coal mine. Now we zoom into this photo and I can identify for you many of the people who appear as characters in my book. Sitting on the step in the bottom row and holding their hats are the four Hoppy sons. From left to right they are Albert, Huey, Lee, and George. In the top row, left to right, we see Morgan T. Bud Williams, who married Hugo's daughter Maggie Williams, and we see her sitting next to him. Bud was aged 43 and Maggie aged 28 when this photo was taken. They were a colorful couple who fought constantly, mainly because Bud was a drunk who was mean anyway and who got meaner when he drank, while Maggie was as mean as he was even when she was sober. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. There are some fascinating stories in this book about both of them. Next to Maggie is her mother, Mary G. Hoppy. Sitting next to Mary is Hugo J. Hoppy. And above him, standing in the doorway, is eldest son, Walter Hoppy, who had just turned 21 when this photo was taken. The biggest mystery of this photo is who the next two people were. A young woman and a young man who are eyeing each other suspiciously, or, or angrily as I make it. We do not yet know their story. I look forward to finding it out someday. Next, and standing in the second doorway, is Carol T. Hobart. Mr. Hobart was Hugo Hoppy's good friend, and he was also the vice president and general manager of the Yellowstone National Park Improvement Company, the company that ran the hotels, restaurants, and tent camps in the park. Hobart and Hugo Hoppy were in several businesses together, and they each needed the other one for business purposes. The others in the picture were friends and employees. I've been able to identify some of them. So Hugo Hoppy and his family Settled into life at Cinnabar, which always involved watching stagecoaches full of park visitors heading to and from Yellowstone Park. Life at Cinnabar, in many ways, also included the nearby small towns of Gardner, Mammoth, Bear Gulch, Hoare, H-O-R-R, -R, 
Aldrich, Fridley, known today as Immigrant, and even Cook City and Livingston, because the Hoppies spent time in all those places. But in order to purchase the hotel store and saloon at Cinnabar, Hugo Hoppy had to save up the money by enlisting the aid of his entire family for his dreams. I have told the story of how he did it in this book, but it took him nine years of living at Cinnabar before he could effectively buy the hotel, saloon, and store. Meanwhile, he managed hotels for other people, served as a Park County Commissioner downstream at Livingston, sold land, freighted with his sons, and ranched, salooned, and rented properties to others, all in pursuit of his dreams for Cinnabar. Note here another picture of one of the bigger stagecoaches that ran from Cinnabar into the park called Tally Ho's, named from people sitting in the rear seats, Tally Ho, to the stagecoaches passing, we think. And this stagecoach and most of the Tally Ho's actually had seats on its roof, which we can see here, and they could carry more than 30 people if they were crowded into it. Probably not the safest, but they did it. These coaches operated only between the railroad and Mammoth Hot Springs and not out in the park proper. In 1892, Hugo Hoppy's dreams came true when he was able to purchase the Cinnabar Hotel, saloon, and store from his friend W.A. Hall. Here's a photo of the building, and I wish it were clearer so that we could blow it up and see the faces of the people because I'm sure I would know many of them, but we can't, alas. Hugo Hoppy's life at Cinnabar got really interesting from 1892 to 95. He moved his family all into this hotel and ran it as one big family affair. He loved watching tourists disembark from the daily trains that went back and forth to Livingston. And they were called tourists then. Our kinder, gentler word visitors was not yet in vogue. He hosted his grandniece, Little Ida Miller, aged nine, and her mother for an entire summer at his hotel, and the nine-year-old girl later wrote a book about what she saw, including the train officials. Little Ida was smitten almost instantly with Cinnabar, and she remembered it all her life. It lingers in the memory, she wrote, like the first kiss of a true love, or the smile of a firstborn, or the scent of the first rose of spring. Whatever those feelings were, they imprinted strongly upon her young mind. The little girl remembered the runt train, as they called it, that they had ridden from Livingston, comprised of only four cars and, and an engine, pulling up to Cinnabar's little toy station, as she remembered. White, attired, colored porters with grins like politicians, she wrote, opened the doors of both Pullmans, hopped down the steps with stools in their hands, set the stools at the foot of the steps, and helped to alight the ladies whose hands were occupied in holding several bolts of billowing petticoats and skirts in a way not to reveal their ankles. <laughs> Little Ida looked around at the motley crowd of people milling on the platform, and she told us whom she saw there, guides for pack outfits or private camping parties, farmers after freight, folks waiting to go to Livingston when the train went back, porters dancing attention at $5 a jig, Men loading the stages with tourists and their luggage. Freighters after their freight. Spectators watching the frontier drama and of course the tourists who were comedians of the drama. For the tourists of that day came to go through the park dressed like they were attending a grand ball. It was indeed a, a different world. Little Ida was also there when her Aunt Mary Hoppy was bedbound from cancer. Mary's last months stressed Hugo Hoppy unbelievably. 
even as he was struggling to make Cinnabar work as a town. His energetic nine-year-old niece contrasted sharply with Aunt Mary and Uncle Hugo in Mary's last year. And in that respect, little Ida represented a key difference between old people and young people. The old torment themselves by worrying about their financial and family problems. The young dance, drink, and chirp. It is a story as ancient as humans. By August of 1894, Mary was seriously ill with cancer. And on October 30th, she died at Cinnabar. Hugo Hoppy was devastated. With Mary gone at the relatively young age of 57, Hugo's mind must have wandered back over the 30 years of their Enoch Arden romance. That famous poem, authored by Alfred Lord Tennyson and published on July 30, 1864, only a week before their eldest son was born, had been a foundation of the Hoppy's marriage, and they talked of it to their children. In the poem, illustrated here with a painting, Enoch Arden left his wife Annie to go to sea in order to support her. When he was stranded for ten years on a desert island, Annie gave him up for dead and married his childhood rival. Enoch returned to learn that she was happily married with a child, but elected not to interfere with her happiness, and instead pined away and died of a broken heart. Like Annie in the poem, Mary Jane G. was twice wed and had a child with her first husband, Richard James. He went to the Civil War, and when Mary heard nothing more from him, she believed that he was dead. She married Hugo Hoppy, and they moved to Montana. It was at Fort Benton, recalled Hugo later, that the most poignant experience of my life took shape, for there he encountered, encountered Richard James, unexpectedly alive. Mr. James, recalled Hugo, saw Mrs. Hoppy and told a saloon full of men that she was his wife. That was merely dame gossip, declared the citizens of Helena. But like Enoch Arden in the poem, Richard James fortunately did not pursue Mary Hoppy. Regardless, Hugo Hoppy from that moment on must have always kept an eye over both his and Mary's shoulders. Mary's death was an emotional blow for Hugo Hoppy and it affected his health. He did not know what was the matter with him, wrote little Ida nor did he consult a physician because he believed he was run down from overwork and worry. I noticed how thin and tired she look, he looked, said little Ida, but he continued to work on making Cinnabar a success. Meanwhile, Hugo's daughter Maggie, mean as she was, fired Ida's mother from the Cinnabar Hotel and broke her heart. Little Ida never forgot her summer in Cinnabar. She moved to Livingston to attend school and grew up there. She graduated as valedictorian in Livingston's class of 1905 and wrote a book about her uncle Hugo and his town. And she recorded for us one of Hugo Hoppy's dramatic moments. It happened at Christmas after Ida's mother had a minor heart attack and Ida went back to Cinnabar to take care of her. Hugo Hoppy came to see them and Ida eavesdropped on the conversation at her mother's bedside. Both broke into soulful weeping, says Ida, and I cried with them. Between sobs, Mama cried out, Oh, Uncle Hugo, why did you have me come to the West when you knew how mean Maggie is? You couldn't help but know it. Uncle Hugo answered, Yes, I know how mean Maggie can be when she wants to, but I had no idea that Maggie would treat you like she did, and I was worried about Mary and did not know. Maggie told me that you wanted to come. 
It was a terrible thing for her to do without consulting me, but it is too late now to do anything because I found out I have quick consumption and... At that, Ida says her mother gasped. The woman turned ashen gray and cried out, My God, Uncle Hugo. It was true. Uncle Hugo Hoppy had tuberculosis, an untreatable death sentence in those days, called consumption because it seemed to consume the body. In the hospitals of that era, helpers kept the caskets always ready to receive bodies of the dead. While Ida's mother cried her eyes out, Hugo told her that he wished he could do more for her, but that he was a nearly broke man who had pooled his money with that of his sons and put most of it into cinnabar. The rest he had spent on his wife Mary's medical bills. My family has been a family of bickering, he lamented, and I did most anything to keep trouble down. But he remained adamant that Cinnabar would someday be the largest town in Montana. That the railroad would never extend its tracks to Gardner. That Cook City and Bear Gulch would someday be great mining centers. And that the park's northern strip would someday be removed from the park for the railroad. Alas, none of those things would ever happen. Thinking it might help his health, Hoppy traveled to California, where he died in San Diego on September the 12th, 1895. After he died, his sons ran the Cinnabar for seven more years, and then suddenly the railroad got the rights to extend the tracks to Gardner. That killed Cinnabar, even though it took more than a year to do it. Of course, even as it gladdened the hearts of Gardner residents, it broke the hearts of all those who lived in Cinnabar, at least 94 people by the U.S. Census of 1900, including three of the Hoppy brothers who were still there. Here we see the first train passengers being unloaded at Gardner in July of 1902, where there was not yet a depot. Now it is time for my summary and conclusions. Because this book is much longer than what we've covered today, some of this will tell you a bit about the history of Cinnabar after the town disappeared. As I conclude this story, we will be looking at larger versions of this panoramic photograph of Cinnabar, which is owned by the Hoppy family. Show, still shows where they taped it up there in the middle. And as far as I know, this photo doesn't exist in any repository except in electronic form. The Cinnabar Triangle portion of Yellowstone is quiet today, just as it was in the 1860s before most Euro-Americans arrived on the scene. But beginning in the 1870s, it became the site of ranches and small farms. There is much more to the story of this triangle, that three-sided extension of Yellowstone's boundary west of Gardner, but it is only peripherally related to Cinnabar, the community that stood within it. The town of Cinnabar rose there in 1883 on Hugo Hoppy's belief and knowledge that they are going to build a railroad, and it lasted until 1903 when much of the dying town moved to Gardner. During that period, the railroad's terminus was at Cinnabar, and passengers disembarked there for stagecoach tours of Yellowstone. The town of Cinnabar was small but colorful during its 20 years of existence. Hugo Hoppy labored valiantly to make Cinnabar into a genuine town, but ultimately failed. He overestimated the strength of the area's gold and coal, overestimated the power of terminal towns along the railroad, underestimated the influence of the town of Gardner, and underestimated the power of Yellowstone Park and its burgeoning tourism. In all of that, he cannot be faulted. 
The powers of minerals, railroads, and terminal towns were known and proven forces, while the power of a new park's tourism was not. No one knew whether Yellowstone would ever receive many visitors or whether tourism would even work in the American West, let alone that this park would become a worldwide touristic phenomenon. And two, Hoppy had no way of knowing that the desire to preserve Yellowstone for future generations would someday cause the American public through the National Park Service to reach out and absorb the town site of Cinnabar along with the rest of the Cinnabar Triangle. In all of this, Hugo Hoppy was typical of many Westerners who invested their dreams in businesses that became ghost towns and in homes, barns, and corrals erected on the prairie only to become empty, windblown skeletons that you've probably seen as you've driven around Montana. Cinnabar died as it had lived, dependent upon the railroad and ceasing to exist when the railroad extended its tracks to Gardner. Cinnabar is gone today, but its story stands tall in the history of Yellowstone. In 2007, archaeologists excavated building sites on the town site, finding more than 1,800 artifacts. Today, the site is temporarily fenced so that the NPS can begin procedures to restore the area to the native grasses that once grew there, which were destroyed by years of agricultural planting. After Cinnabar died in 1903, the area reverted to quiet ranching until 1925. That year, the NPS began a drive to purchase various private lands north of Yellowstone Park for winter range of elk. A presidential proclamation by Herbert Hoover in 1932 added 7,600 acres of the Cinnabar Triangle to the park's north boundary. Following other land conveyances, the park boundary with regard to the Cinnabar Triangle was completed as we know it today. The conflicts over these lands during the 1930s serve as continuing lessons for us today in the ways that government and private citizens often misunderstand each other. Rail passenger service to Gardner ended officially in 1948, with special trains to bring employees to the park occurring as late as 1957. Freight service continued through 1975. In 1976, workmen removed the tracks between Livingston and Gardner. This author, then a 26-year-old park bus driver, remembers watching the tracks being removed all the way to Livingston while driving passenger buses along that stretch of U.S. Highway 89. I shed a few personal tears that summer while witnessing the end of nearly a century of railroad-related history. Little did I know as I watched the tracks disappear that the historical saying, they're going to build a railroad, had already become an exclamation relegated to a bygone era. Thank you.